0: If you have a Bible, you can open to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3. We'll look at verses 8 through 13. Jonathan Edwards, uh, early in the 1700s, wrote this. I know of scarce any duty which is so much insisted on, so pressed and urged upon us, both in the Old Testament and New, as this duty of charity to the poor read through the uh, Old Testament histories, the law, as we read in our Old Testament reading this morning, wisdom literature, prophets, everywhere you find God's people being called to extend mercy and love to the poor, to the widow, the orphan, the alien, and the stranger. If God's people weren't being commanded to show mercy to the poor, then they were being condemned for their failure to show mercy to the poor. It's a It's a major theme throughout the Old Testament, and it picks right up again. In the New Testament, uh, Jesus spent a lot of time with societal outcasts. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He taught his disciples, blessed are the poor. And he told everyone that when they served the destitute and the lonely, they were serving him. The early church was so transformed by God's Free grace that they all shared their possessions with those who were in need, so that it was actually said that there was not a needy person among them. The apostles made it a priority to remember the poor, and they commanded all Christians not to show favoritism based on things like wealth or social status. So mercy, charity, compassion, social justice, uh, these are things that are fairly important to God because God is compassionate. God is merciful. In fact, when God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, his whole life was characterized by two things, teaching and serving. And in churches like ours, there's a tendency to emphasize the teaching part. Uh, Jesus Christ, the word, the teacher, the elder, the chief elder. But Jesus is also the servant of the Lord the chief deacon. And if we're going to reflect all of who Jesus is and all of what he's done, then we need to have a passion for both teaching and service, for both word ministry and mercy ministry in our church. It's not that word ministry is the really spiritual stuff and mercy ministry is mundane. Both aspects of ministry together reflect more fully the person and work and values of Jesus himself. Tim Keller says in his book, uh, Ministries of Mercy, what does the Bible say about a family or a church which, sh- which says, our job is just to preach the gospel but does not involve itself in a social concern? The ministry of mercy is essential to Christian love and lifestyle. Even though the ministry of mercy aims at physical needs, it is a spiritual ministry to physical needs. Mercy is essential to Christian love and lifestyle. So much so that Jesus has given to his church not just one office of leadership but two. Right? He's ordained that there be elders who rule and teach his word and he has ordained that there be deacons who are ministers of mercy. So this morning we're going to talk about the qualifications for deacons as ministers of mercy that Paul sets forth in First Timothy 3. So let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we come to you for help this morning as we look at your word. We know that by our nature, left to ourselves, um, we would either not understand it, or we would reject it as conflicting with our own uh, presuppositions, our own desires, and our own longings. And we pray that you would come and reorganize our lives around your word, that you would give us desires and longings and presuppositions that flow from your word, that you would transform uh, every part of our lives by your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so the first thing we need to see in our passage is the seemingly insignificant word, likewise. Uh, Paul has just finished giving an explanation of the qualities to look for in men who would be ordained to the office of elder, which we've talked about the last couple of weeks. So he's saying that deacons, just like the elders, have to display certain qualities publicly in the church. Like we said last week, all Christians are called to display most of these qualities, but uh, these qualities are actually required for those who would be officers in the church. And the standard of these character uh, requirements is very high because the responsibility that officers share is great. Um, John Stott said that the responsibility of caring for God's church is calculated to daunt the best and most gifted Christians. So, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Uh, Being dignified is actually something that uh, Paul explicitly says is uh, shared by the deacons and the elders. They both have that in common as they're both called to reflect and represent Jesus Christ himself in their office in the church. Uh, double-tongued means insincere. It's like saying, um, speaking out of both sides of your mouth. Right? Deacons spend a lot of time with the down-and-outs, right? uh, with people that the world has a hard time loving. And they're to share the very love of Christ with them and they're they're to inspire all the rest of us to join with them in doing so. But what normally happens when you encounter people who are hard to love? There's often the temptation to appear to be nice to people uh, when you're dealing with them to their faces anyway, but then to turn around and speak poorly of them to others. Being double-tongued betrays a lovelessness You don't sincerely care for those who are hard to love. You're just acting like you do for some reason. And we do that all the time uh, because we want people to think well of us. And in case you didn't know, that's not a good thing, right? Uh, We need to be forgiven and we need to turn away from that motive for interacting with people. Uh, Deacons especially cannot serve the poor so that people will think well of them. That uh, in no way demonstrates the selfless love and the service of Jesus. That's just a big old demonstration of hypocrisy which uh, the poor can sniff out from a mile away. So deacons need to be the kind of people who are aware of the fact that in God's sight, they are the ones that are difficult to love. They are the ones that have nothing to offer God. They don't in any way merit his favor or his attention, and yet God doesn't lie. He's not double-tongued. He is sincere, and he has spoken words of undying, steadfast love to us. God gave up his own son to death on a cross to love the unlovable, to have mercy on miserable sinners. And deacons know that they have been the undeserving recipients of that love, and their response is a changed heart toward the unlovable. Uh, Their response is kind and sincere words of encouragement to those that the world has abandoned as a lost cause. Deacons must not be addicted to much wine. Like the elders, deacons need to be free from addictions. In fact, I would say this applies to more than just an abuse of alcohol. I think officers in the church need to be free from all addictions. Uh, They're set before the church not as examples of supreme righteousness, but as trophies of God's grace, right? Testimony to the, the true nature of God as the one true God, right? If they're enslaved to other gods, like alcohol or drugs or food or sex or money, um, yet they're called to proclaim with their lips and also with their lives, That God's grace frees people from chains like these, uh, there's a serious discrepancy somewhere, right? God's love is better than life. It's better than the passing pleasures of sin. It's better than the good gifts that we distort and become addicted to. We give ourselves to false gods like wine to get us through life, to bring us some happiness or to dull the pain that we can't deal with, to grant some sense of fulfillment, or worth, or identity, or whatever, right? And once we've given ourselves to such things, we are ensnared. And we need more and more to distract us from the reality of our plight. But God gives us everything that we truly need. And he gives us more than we could ever imagine In the gospel, Jesus suffered and died in our place to reconcile us to God, to provide our full acceptance with our Heavenly Father, a new identity. And Jesus was raised from the dead with a glorified immortal body as a promise and a pledge that we too shall be raised to everlasting life like him. At any moment, by the mere thought of the gospel, we have perfect reason for full joy. And no false god could ever deliver on that kind of a promise. And when God's love, God's beauty, God's majesty and glory captures your heart, then the grip that those false gods have on your life is broken. And you will turn away from them. Maybe all at once. And maybe bit by bit in a long, drawn-out death match. But because of who God is and because of what he's done for us, There is hope for anyone to be freed from their false gods. And deacons are, um, maybe more than anyone, connected in the lives of broken people who are trapped in addiction. Deacons have great opportunity to show with their own lives how the gospel can deliver people from enslaving sins. Deacons must not be greedy for dishonest gain. In the book of Acts, we see the beginning of the diaconal ministry when the saints, uh, all the Christians in the church, gave their money to the leaders of the church for the distribution of the poor. Uh, Someone who is greedy for dishonest gain can't be trusted to deal well with the money that's given to them in good faith. And really, um, we all need to be motivated more and more by a true desire to serve God, rather than a desire to get pleasures and comforts for ourselves uh, by money. <clears throat> but deacons in particular have to be free from such things as they're so often the point men for mercy ministries, which are meant to reflect the, the self-sacrificial generosity of Christ that's at work in his people. So generosity is the opposite of Greed. A friend of mine looks at um, Acts, especially chapter 6, and gets from it the fact that the deacons are called to spend money generously and wisely on behalf of the needy, right? A lot of times we think deacons should be um, maybe the fiscal conservatives, they're watching the spending, they're making sure we stick to the budget. And who is the guy that did that among Jesus' disciples? It was Judas, the betrayer, who is stealing money from the purse, who condemned the lavishing of expensive ointment on Jesus when it was used to honor and prepare him for his burial. Deacons absolutely need to be responsible and wise as stewards of the resources that have been entrusted to them, but they should be liberal and generous with their own resources. And with the church's resources in the accomplishment of the church's mission. Right? Uh, our book of church order says this about deacons It is the duty of deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. It is their duty also to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church. How are they to develop the grace of liberality in others? When they're restricted by greed themselves, they need to be catalysts in the congregation to get everyone focused on meeting the needs of people, knowing full well that it's going to cost us all to do that. Just like it cost Jesus everything to secure for us unimaginable riches. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. The deacon knows that the abundance of God has supplied his need, that he has no lack of anything because he has God himself. And so he has no need to be greedy for dishonest gain, but he can lead the way in generosity. Verse 9. Deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let me just explain. Explain briefly what Paul means here by the mystery of the faith. Christianity is no mystery religion. Maybe you've heard that term before. Man made religions throughout history have been characterized by something we call Gnosticism, right? Uh, Special knowledge. The further and deeper you progress into these religions, the more secrets, the more mysteries you learn. Today, uh, there are plenty of cults that talk about degrees of enlightenment or levels of attainment and the congruent rewards and special clothing and places in heaven for people who achieve the higher levels, right? And that's not the way that Paul is using the word mystery here. It's not the way that he uses it anywhere. Um, Mystery, in Paul's vocabulary, is simply a way of saying... Something that would be inaccessible to us unless God revealed it. With all our ingenuity, with all of our philosophical insight, we could never fathom the mystery of our salvation, but God has clearly revealed it to us. And the content of that mystery is made clear actually in the next passage that Paul writes to Timothy. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of of godliness, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's the fundamentals. It's the simple gospel itself about who Jesus is and what he's done for us that Paul is calling the mystery of the faith. Because it's something that people didn't come up with on their own. It's not a man-made religion. It's revealed by God in history and to us in his word. And the good news about Christianity is clear for any who would listen. Jesus has fully opened up the way to God by his blood on the cross. There is no special level that you can reach by trying harder than others, by knowing the secrets. Jesus has granted all of us instant access to the holy of holies, to the very intimate presence of God Himself all as a free gift of His grace. If you've got Jesus, you've got it all. The deacon doesn't have to be some super spiritual guru. He has to be someone who's persuaded of his own sin, who knows his own deep need of the grace of God, and who is forgiven and cleansed and transformed by that grace as it is clearly revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He hasn't attained to a clean conscience for himself. He knows he can't wipe his own slate clean or do enough good works to outweigh all the bad. A clear conscience truly only comes by faith in Jesus Christ. So the deacon, by his humble faith, by his repentance and renewed obedience fueled by God's grace, the deacon is a model for Christians and for non-Christians alike to show them how they can be made right with God through Jesus. The deacon isn't called to be able to teach, necessarily. That's the major dissimilarity between Paul's description of the elder and Paul's description of the deacon. But even though deacons aren't called to teach the church's doctrines, they are called to hold fast to those same doctrines, just like the elder's. And that's why we we require all church officers to subscribe to the theological standards of our church. These are the first two vows for ordination of both elders and deacons um, that hopefully you'll hear someday in a service as we uh, ordain and install some. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? And do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, you will on your own initiative make known to your session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow? So we take um, an elder and a deacon's uh, grasp of the gospel, their understanding of the Bible and, and theological knowledge very seriously in our denomination. Let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons and if they prove themselves blameless. So deacons are to be tested just like the elders are with regard to the ministry that's specific to the office to which they're called. Right? Deacons don't start their ministry upon their ordination. It's more like their ordination is a formal recognition that they are already ministers of mercy called and equipped by God. Um, Paul says a little bit later in this book, in in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, which we uh, take to uh, signify ordination of officers in the church. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So an officer is to be tested. Give him some time to show whether his works are good or whether they're bad. Good works of a diaconal nature must be recognizably demonstrated before ordination. And that is why it's very helpful to have, as part of our nomination process, uh, the rule that someone has to be nominated by at least three unrelated members. I've known of a man uh, in another church who had a large family, and his family members were the only ones who nominated him to the office. No one else in the church recognized him as being a potential officer. And he excused this by saying, Well, you know, oftentimes the best leaders are the ones who do all their work behind the scenes, who don't get any recognition for their quiet service. But Paul says good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. If you should be an officer in the church, whether an elder or a deacon... It's going to be clear to people already. You will already have a ministry in the church. So what's a deacon's ministry look like? Uh, Very simply, mercy. Uh, Tim Keller says that mercy is the impulse that makes us sensitive to hurts and lacks in others and makes us desire to alleviate them. We can get anyone to be our accountant, or draft a budget. We can get a committee together to take care of the building. Deacons are moved by mercy to meet the needs of people. Alexander Strock has a book called The New Testament Deacon. Uh, He says this, my heartfelt burden is to help deacons get out of the boardroom, or the building maintenance mentality and into the people-serving mentality. Deacons, as the New Testament teaches, and as some of the 16th century reformers discovered, are to be involved in a compassionate ministry of caring for the poor and needy. The deacon's ministry, therefore, is one that no Christ-centered New Testament church can ever afford to neglect. In contemporary language, they are the congregation's social workers. He says in another place, We must not forget that the real treasures of the church are its people, not its pews and buildings. Yet so often the needy are left unattended, and the church building receives priority attention both in time and funds. A deacon is someone who keeps his attention fixed on mercy and who tries his best to get everyone's attention fixed on mercy. If you're thinking you could be a deacon, uh, you should try to look honestly at your life and your practices. You should seek honest counsel of friends who know you well. Ask them whether they can detect the outward signs of God's call, things like a history of caring for the needs of the poor and the estranged. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, uh, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. This verse is uh, very controversial because the word that is translated wives in our text uh, could also be simply translated women. Uh, So commentators argue whether Paul is talking about deacons' wives who might assist them in their work or whether he's talking about women who are deacons. And there are so many variables in this text Uh, as well as things to consider from the larger context of the Bible, that I really can't do the discussion uh, justice right now. Uh, Talk to me afterwards if you want to have that conversation. But I will say that our denomination's book of church order only allows for men to hold office, whether that's as elders or as deacons. But our book of church order also says this. Um, In the chapter on deacons, it says, It is often expedient that the session of a church, the elders, should select and appoint godly men and women of the congregation to assist the deacons in caring for the sick, the widows, the orphans, the prisoners, and others who may be in distress or need. These assistants to the deacons are not officers of the church, and as such are not subjects for ordination. I think it's very important that we recognize and honor those who would serve in the church uh, as deacons and as deacons' assistants, godly men and women uh, who help with mercy ministries. And deacons' assistants should probably meet the requirements that are listed here in verse 11. So, uh, verse 12, <clears throat> let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So we talked about this uh, qualification a lot last week, so I'll just refer you to that sermon, which is available on our website. <laughs> Uh, I do want to call your attention, however, to the fact that these are requirements that are shared both by elders and deacons, um, which, along with the next verse, tip us off to the idea that in Paul's mind, the deacon is not just a junior elder. The deacon must be every bit as spiritual as the elder. The gospel has to be at work in his family relationships just as much. Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul's not saying, you know, a good deacon having shown his worth is ready to move up to the position of elder. Like Paul said before, that the office of overseer is a noble task. So he's calling attention here to the the honor, the nobility of serving well as a deacon. Deacons may not be rulers, but they're not just janitors. Uh, George Knight, a commentator, says this, The encouragement given to deacons who serve faithfully is progress and confidence or boldness in the sphere of faith in Christ in which they already stand. This doesn't mean that they're coming up with uh, merit points, ...with God by really serving well as deacons... ...as opposed to all those uh, pew warmers out there in the church. Um, Any true honor that they receive is by the grace of God... ...and the confidence or boldness that they gain... ...is growth in their own faith. It's growth in their own faith. The deacon who grows in his good service in the church... ...must be every bit as committed as the elder... ...to the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified shaping our church and our community. Mercy ministry is the distinct, lifelong passion of a deacon, and he has to swim in God's own mercy to him in order to help others with that same mercy in a sincere way. So the more that he sees the love of Christ for himself, the more that he sees the love of Christ spread through diaconal ministry, the more encouraged he will be in his own faith that the gospel has the power to transform the whole world. And the church, with good deacons, benefits greatly as those deacons mobilize God's people to move out in mercy. Strzok again says, when the uh, the local church compassionately cares for people's needs, the world sees a visible display of Christ's love, which will draw some people to the Savior. So um, it's a popular question for churches to ask of themselves these days. If our church were to disappear, would our presence be missed? If Ascension were to disappear, would the city of Hillsborough miss us? Honestly, right now, I think the answer would be no. Except maybe by some of you, but you don't count. (laughs) (laughs) If the answer is at all... Yes, our presence would be missed. It would most likely be because of the impact of our deacons helping our church visibly display Christ's love in our community. So let's pray for that as we pray about whom we should nominate as deacons. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you said during your life on earth, uh, before being crucified, that you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. And we certainly do want to imitate you. We pray that your gospel would change us so that we would be the kind of people who lay down our lives for other people. And we pray that you would raise up deacons recognizably in this church who would lead our church forward in the ministries of mercy and compassion and social justice for the good of our church and for the glory of your kingdom advancing in this world and for the good, indeed, of this world, those lives that have yet to be touched by your gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.